Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law, and I'll be your host for this episode. My guest today is Ken Epstein, an investment manager and legal counsel at Bentham IMF. Ken has extensive experience in bankruptcy and financial restructuring, which he brings to bear in leading Bentham's investments in bankruptcy and insolvency-related matters. Thank you for joining me today, Ken. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get started, I do want to remind our audience that nothing we say here today is intended to provide legal advice, and that the opinions that we are going to express today in this conversation are our own personal views and not necessarily those of the institutions that we represent. Um, Ken, to get us started, can you talk to us about the, your firm, Bentham IMF? Yeah, so Bentham uh, IMF is the U.S. subsidiary of IMF Bentham which is an Australian company listed on the Australian Securities Exchange. Uh, IMF Ventham pioneered the modern litigation finance market in Australia about 20 years ago and went public in 2001. And we opened the U.S. branch, uh, Bentham IMF or Bentham Capital, in 2011 and uh, have been uh, growing ever since. For those of us... uh uninitiated to the litigation finance world. Can you give us an overall idea of what you mean by, you know, uh, commercial litigation finance and and how this works? So with commercial litigation finance, a third party uh, unrelated to a lawsuit provides capital to a plaintiff involved in litigation in exchange for a portion of the financial recovery from the lawsuit. Commercial litigation finance is uh, between sophisticated parties and typically involves complex, lengthy, and extensive litigation. And uh, our investment, um, and I want to distinguish that it's an investment and not a loan, is being provided on a non-recourse basis. So to the extent the litigation is successful, we get our return. To the extent that the litigation is not, then there's no obligation on the part of the litigant to repay us. And when you said these are these are investments, as I understand it, there's different sort of uh, investment products that uh, commercial litigation financiers provide. Can you talk to us? What are the different types of products do you offer? We typically provide funding in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is on an individual case basis. So to the extent a litigant uh, has limited resources but a meritorious claim, then we can provide for the payment of all or a portion of that litigant's fees and expenses. That's one way. So there's an indivi- a way to invest on an individual case basis. And then separately, we have what's called a portfolio investment approach, where if there are multiple causes of action, we can cross-collateralize our investment. And this option is often used by law firms who take matters, matters on contingency or on the client side, if a client has multiple plaintiff side uh, actions that it wants to bring, but for whatever reason, either it doesn't have the capital to bring them or doesn't want to bear the entire risk associated with the litigations. So yep. c- can you mention the sort of two basic types of litigation finance products, sort of the, the law firm side and the client side? Um, can you go in a little bit more detail? What is the client side litigation funding and how could that be beneficial to a trust estate, a debtor, to creditors? This is this is one of the areas that I'm I'm really excited about. Um, and it is a is a way that our product can be used to 
um, increase recoveries to trust beneficiaries and and the like. And just like when you have a law firm portfolio financing and you can group together three or more litigations to collateralize our investment, the same is true on the client side. So if you have a trust that's set up and that trust is the transferee of multiple causes of action, let's say that the trustee um, post-confirmation holds two preference claims and two fraudulent conveyance claims and a claim against an insurance company that has been disputed um, coverage, um, you know, or tax claims and recovery claims and things like that. It's possible to um, get an investment from us that is cross-collateralized by those multiple actions. And let me give you an example of how it works out to the benefit of the estate. So if you assume, um, say the trust has five causes of action and the estimated damages are 100 million, and it's going to cost $5 million to secure that recovery. So you have, again, five causes of action, cost $5 million to recover $100 million. And the trust otherwise has, has no resources to litigate. Then the trustee has two options primarily. One is it can hire contingency counsel um, or it can get litigation funding, get funding from another source. If you hire... Contingency counsel typical arrangements are 40% of the litigation proceeds or something like that. Um, so in that instance, you have a recovery of 100 million. The lawyers get 40 million, and the trust estate gets 60. So 60 million is distributed out to trust beneficiaries. And of course, you know, we're using simple numbers, we're not talking about other uh, leakage and administrative expenses and all that kind of stuff, but just to keep it simple. If you take funding on that same example and cross-collateralize it, um, where you can pay a return on the deployed capital as opposed to the litigation proceeds, then let's say let's say your agreement with the funder is to return three times their money. The estate in that context, uh, assuming the same facts, five causes of action, $5 million dollars, uh, to secure the recovery and legal fees and 100 million recovery, the estate gets 85 million out of that as opposed to 60. The funder gets 5 million, it's deployed capital times three, so 15 million back, and the remainder goes to the estate. So um, again, the, in, the, in the kind of portfolio case, uh, especially in the trust environment, um, I think it can be extremely beneficial as opposed to some of the other alternatives. And of course, there are ways to combine uh, and use a hybrid approach between contingency and um, litigation funding, perhaps to achieve even greater results. And uh, how how do, how do the clients, the borrowers, end up using these products, either on the client side or the law firm side? You hinted the law firm side; it's basically it's a sort of an alternative financing for contingency related matter or matters that might otherwise be handled through contingency fees. Correct. Yeah. So, so on the on the um, law firm portfolio side, if a law firm has three or more matters that it has taken risk on, then they can work with us, and we can provide them financing that is cross collateralized by those matters, and it looks more like a traditional line of credit um, than um, our single case financing, which is you know done on an individual case basis. And the return in that case is usually based on a multiple and of the deployed capital and um, is not tied to the recovery on any one individual case. And 
uh, our relationship is with the law firm as opposed to uh, directly with the client or the claimant in most of our individual funding scenarios. And you asked you asked uh, how it can be used. Um, it can be used in a number of different ways. In particular, in the bankruptcy context, it can be used by debtors, creditors, um, uh, trustees, receivers, um, anybody who has a uh, litigation claim that it controls and either uh, doesn't have the resources to bring it or uh, wishes to share some of the risk associated with the litigation. And so we have seen in a number of contexts, just take, for example, a post-confirmation trust that's set up after a company emerges from bankruptcy, where the claims that are held by the creditors or the debtors pre pre-confirmation are transferred to this trust. And a trustee has uh, limited resources potentially to uh, prosecute valid causes of action. And so that trustee uh, or receiver or plan administrator, as, as it's called, can use our funding to help, um, to help level the playing field against well-heeled defendants that would otherwise be able to use um, you know, the advantage of their greater resources against uh, the trustee. Absent the availability of commercial litigation finance, think of the, you know, talking about that li liquidating trust that, um, uh -huh. what, what would, absent the availability of this sort of uh, financing, what, what means would the trustee otherwise have to pursue those causes of action? It, it really depends on the situation. So if, if a trustee, oftentimes when a trust is set up, uh, it may be set up with some seed funding. Uh, that is provided by the debtor or the secure creditors under a plan. Uh, if the trust has the ability to sell an asset very quickly, then it may be able to self-fund. That may not be the case in in most uh, scenarios. Uh, or they can try to go out and get a more traditional loan or line of credit backed by assets to the extent they exist in the trust. Um, if those kind of more traditional sources of capital are not available, then they have a couple of options. One is to find a contingency law firm to help represent them, uh, in which case that firm would take a piece of the um, a percentage of the ultimate litigation uh, recoveries. Usually, I think it's about 40%. Or they can come to a funder, which is a rather new option and um, becoming more uh, uh, widespread and available uh, to um, to obtain money to prosecute um, the actions in a, in a similar fashion. And with litigation funding, they can choose from a broader um, pool of law firms, uh, those that they could pay hourly or on some hybrid model, and um, also use the funds for a lot of different purposes. So it doesn't have to be limited necessarily to just prosecuting the lawsuit. They can use funds for um, the administration of the trust or uh, a liquidity event um, to pay out trust beneficiaries, potentially to investigate claims and all, all different types of, of stuff. So. so in some ways, it sounds like the one way, one helpful way of thinking of uh, litigation funding in the bankruptcy context is perhaps as uh, competing with law firms who might otherwise be offering their services on contingency, maybe competing with uh, 
other parties in the case who might actually have an interest in financing this? Or, or my misunderstanding is it's more, perhaps it's more nuanced and occasionally actually working together. It's more of a cooperative approach between uh, more traditional lenders, traditional uh, means of financing litigation, along with these sort of newer, newly available uh, financial products. You know, I wouldn't describe it that we uh, we compete with uh, contingency lawyers because oftentimes we can work together in concert to obtain the best result for the client. For example, many contingency law firms, while they may be comfortable taking the risk associated with the litigation and investing their fees, may not want to um, pay out the costs associated with the litigation. So retaining experts and advisors and things like that that are critical to the successful outcome of the case, but they may not have the resources or desire to to pay that out. So oftentimes, you know, in large litigations, even if you see a contingency law firm there, we will uh, provide uh, for the payment of costs and expenses to enable the lawsuit to go forward. Uh, we can also provide working capital to a litigant, which is critical, especially for contingency firms, to alleviate some of the pressure that may exist um, and, and the litigant may feel to settle. So, um, you know, we, the, the, the goal is to have a case decided on its merits uh, as opposed to um, guided by the resources that are available to you know, the defendant versus the plaintiff. And our funding really does help level the playing field. Um, so to answer your question, you know, there there is a natural um, way that litigation funding and contingency counsel can work together on a case, I think, to achieve, you know, the best outcome. Great. And, and I've well, I'm curious about other examples where litigation funding could be could benefit parties in a bankruptcy matter, whether that's the debtor or the creditor. Um, the litigation trustee seems like the most obvious fit, the most uh, sure. But you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, you bring a whole wealth of experience as a former bankruptcy lawyer, as a managing managing director in the restructuring and remediation group at a large financial firm. So, with your based on your experience, who exactly can benefit? from commercial litigation funding in this bankruptcy context? You know, it's it's really kind of exciting because we're just trying to, we're, we're just figuring out as an industry, you know, how to use this product effectively in the bankruptcy context. And there's a lot of different ways. So like you said, the most obvious way perhaps is when you have a litigation trust set up whose sole purpose is to litigate and get recoveries into the estate. That's an easy one. But um, and it has been used. Litigation funding has been used in a number of uh, a number of times for that purpose. And there are a number of cases where we could point to where bankruptcy courts have blessed that, and it has really worked out well for the litigants. Um, and we can come back to that. But in the in other aspects of a bankruptcy case, it can work as well. So I we are looking at a case right now where there's a debtor that is on the verge of filing for bankruptcy, and its primary asset is claims that it has against third parties. And absent other hard assets from which to get a dip loan, it may not otherwise be available 
to get financing from a traditional source. So we're looking, evaluating the underlying strengths of the claims to see whether or not we can provide dip financing uh, to that client. And then on the exit side, you know, we looked at a deal very recently where a case was borderline administratively insolvent. The law firm, you know, was invested in the case, as was the advisors, and they were looking for a way to de-risk themselves in part and provide for financing for the post-confirmation reorganized debtor to pursue claims. And so I think that there are ways that financing can be used both on the entry point and the exit point in bankruptcy depending on the situation. Now, we can't compete uh, on economics generally with traditional sources of capital. Our return is much greater because the risk is a lot greater and we're non-recourse than a bank that's going to provide dip financing on a, you know, on a large company that has assets that it can get a priming lien on. But if you have a situation where you, the, the company has litigation assets that need to be monetized or that people want to the risk a portion of, then we can come in and provide a very competitive uh, uh, alternative. That's really interesting. Um, it'd be interesting to watch this develop. Well, one question I have, though, is you know, even if we are going to stay in more the sort of the bread and butter of litigation finance, we're thinking about litigation trust. Even in that context, although it may look very much like commercial litigation funding outside of bankruptcy. The mere fact that it's happening in bankruptcy raises some, I assume, raises some interesting and challenging issues. Um, what are some of like the bankruptcy special aspects of, of funding, even a, more of a traditional litigation trust? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question, and um, the bankruptcy you know practitioners know that in the bankruptcy context, we have greater transparency and disclosure by necessity to bring the entire process into uh, light and add legitimacy to it. So um, whereas typically litigation funding agreements are, are confidential outside of bankruptcy context, subject to disclosure by the client and agreement with the funder, which does happen from time to time, in the bankruptcy context, it is likely, at least pre pre-confirmation that there will need to be disclosure of the agreement. And whether <clears throat> whether the, the, the type of disclosure and the, the method of getting the court's blessing, I think will depend in part on the, the type of financing that's being sought and when. So it is in most of the cases that I've seen that have dealt with this, the financing agreement um, at least the salient terms and the nature of the competitive process that has gotten folks comfortable with that has been disclosed to the court and it's been on notice um, and motion and has been approved by the court. And that's for the comfort of all of those parties involved. And again, to add to the legit legitimacy of the process. Um, so in the, just for example, in the General Motors case, there were two rounds of funding. Um, the first one, the government ended up funding it at a no interest loan. Um, and then the second round, a litigation, third party litigation funder ended up funding it. And that was uh, the agreement was structured as a capital uh, provision agreement and was um, brought pursuant to Section 364 of the code, just like a traditional dip loan would be or a financing agreement would be. 
and it was approved by the court. Um, and the funder went ahead and funded the case. A lot of people are familiar with that case. Um, and that was done under primarily under 364 because it was structured more like a loan. There's another recent case where funding uh, has been used that's been well publicized, and that's the MagCorp case. And Lee Buckwald, as a trustee there, had this kind of innovative uh, idea. And he said, we have this 14 years of litigation. Uh, we have a judgment now that's now up on appeal, and the trust is running out of money. And how can we de-risk, how can we, our client, de-risk, number one, de-risk and make sure that we're going to have something to pay out the creditors in the event we lose the appeal, and two, provide for additional provide additional resources to litigate the appeal and whatever else comes next. So what he did was he ended up selling a piece of the judgment to a third-party litigation firm um, in exchange for a return, and that was teed up more like a sale. So that was teed up under 363 which had a competitive bidding process and a breakup fee, et cetera, um, because it was more like selling an estate than it was more like a financing agreement. So, you know, there are the bankruptcy aspects of this are important and it kind of highlights the need to work with a funder that is familiar with that and to work with, you know, a law firm that knows how litigation financing works and how the bankruptcy process works. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting issue, especially like the MagCorp scenario where, it is, you're effectively selling off, the trustee is effectively selling out, selling off an estate asset, right? At which point we have, maybe have two concerns where, where trans, you know, the importance of transparency. One is, are you selling it for a fair price? And I suppose the second is a, the issue of when selling off part of the claim, does that third party litigation funder then have some control over the trustee's decision whether and how to settle or pursue that claim? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great segue to a critical issue and a, a common misconception among folks about litigation finance. So in the U.S., uh, litigation funders, at least to my knowledge, at least as, as it relates to Bentham, do not take control of the litigation, and they are, um, in many cases, restricted in the type of control that they could potentially take by laws um, governing, you know, an ancient doctrine called champerty and maintenance. But um, more fundamentally, you know, litigation funders cannot intermeddle in cases, and the funding agreements are and should be kind of carefully drafted to. Um, to limit the types of control that a funder can exert. So in our Bentham's litigation uh, funding agreements, for example, we spell out with uh, great detail the type of communications that we have with the client and what we can and can't do. So we do not control case strategy. We don't control choice of counsel. And we don't choose when and we can't say when a litigant should settle or go to trial. All of those things are, are um, part of the risk that we agree to take on in having some lack of control. Um, and that is all prescribed in the, the funding agreement and clearly something that a party seeking litigation finance should look at very carefully. Now you highlight a distinction in the bankruptcy context where you have a trustee or someone else who has a fiduciary duty to creditors. And so it raises the 
the importance potentially in that context and and even more reason why bankruptcy is a great way uh, to proceed with litigation finance because you do have disclosure and everyone has a chance to make sure that whatever uh, consultation rights or information rights the funder has, it doesn't go too far towards the um, spectrum of control. Super interesting. And I, I be interesting to watch the, the growth of this industry and the impact this is going to have on both commercial litigation broadly, but especially in the context of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about the end of our time here. Thank you again, Ken, for joining me. And thank you to all our listeners for yep. tuning in. Please remember that you can access ABI's archive of over 200 podcast episodes in the ABI online newsroom. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson, and thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. Podcast.